0: Greetings and welcome to Stars and Stuff, the astronomy podcast brought to you by me, Richard J. Bartlett. In this episode, we'll have a roundup of the news and planets, review your chances of seeing Comet Neowise over the next few weeks, and then turn our attention to Jupiter and Saturn, which are at their best for the year. Many moons ago, people used to believe that comets were a bad omen. For example, Halley's Comet made an appearance in the year 1066, and then, a few months later, King Harold of England was killed during the Battle of Hastings. More specifically, he was shot in the eye with an arrow. Not a nice way to go. It only seems appropriate then, that during a global pandemic, and with the announcement of a squirrel testing positive for the bubonic plague in Colorado, that there's a bright new Comet now visible in our skies. Comet Neowise was discovered in March this year, and initially seemed to be a pretty ordinary comet. Then, as it approached the Sun, it brightens suddenly and is now a naked eye object in the pre-dawn sky. It's the brightest comet since hale and coincidentally comes during the 25th anniversary of the discovery of that famous comet. If, like me, you're not a morning person, you might be wondering when it might become visible in the evening sky instead. Fortunately, we won't have to wait too long, as it's moving towards Earth's major as we speak, and will soon become visible after sunset. After passing the sun on July 3rd, it's now heading toward the colder outer reaches of the solar system, but not before passing the Earth on the 22nd. Comets typically get fainter as they move further away from the sun, but since it'll be approaching the Earth first, the fading of the comet may be counteracted by its proximity to us. That being said, you won't want to wait too long after the 22nd to try and spot it, as it will likely only get fainter from that point on. Start looking about an hour or 90 minutes after sunset. If you can see the stars of the Big Dipper, or the Plough, as it's known in the United Kingdom, then there's a decent chance you could see the Comet. Those stars are the brightest in the constellation Ursa Major, and the Comet will be passing by from about the 20th onwards. The dipper is now sinking towards the northwestern horizon, with the comet appearing toward the lower left of the bowl. It's hard to describe where to look in a podcast, so I recommend you using an app such as SkySafari, Stellarium or Mobile Observatory to help you spot it. It's also hard to describe what you'll see, because comets are notoriously fickle creatures. It's difficult to predict how bright it will appear, as it could suddenly brighten or fade without almost any warning. I can tell you it won't look, look, look like the pictures you've seen, as those photos have been produced using long exposure times to gather as much light and as much detail as possible. Hale Bob looked like a bright fuzzy star with her tail to her naked eye, but Neowise isn't nearly as bright and won't be so easy to spot. If you can't immediately see it, try scanning the area with binoculars and, as always, get as far away from the lights of the town or the city as you can. It's out there waiting to be seen. Good luck and happy hunting! An international collaboration has discovered an unusual planetary system named WASP-148. The scientists analysed the star's motion and concluded that it hosted two planets, WASP-148b and WASP-148c. The observations showed that the two planets were strongly interacting, which was confirmed from other data. Whereas the first planet, 148b, orbits its star in nearly 9 days, the second one, 148c, takes 4 times longer. This ratio between the orbital periods implies that the WASP-148 system is close to resonance, meaning that there is enhanced gravitational interaction between the two planets. And it turns out that the astronomers did indeed detect variations in the orbital periods of the planets. While a single planet, uninfluenced by a second one, would move with a constant period, 148b and 148c undergo acceleration and deceleration that provides evidence of their interaction. A new analysis of white dwarf stars supports their role as a key source of carbon and elements crucial to all life in the Milky Way and other galaxies. Approximately 90% of all stars end their lives as white dwarfs, very dense stellar remnants that gradually cool and dim over billions of years. With their final few breaths before they collapse however, these stars leave an important legacy, spreading their ashes into the surrounding space through stellar winds enriched with chemical elements including carbon, newly synthesized in the star's deep interior during the last stages before its death. NASA's Perseverance Mars rover has been attached to the top of the rocket that will send it towards the Red Planet this summer. Encased in a nose cone that will protect it during the launch, the rover and the rest of the Mars 2020 spacecraft, the aeroshell, cruise stage and descent stage, were affixed to a United Launch Alliance Atlas V booster on Tuesday July 7th at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Central Florida. With the mating of spacecraft and booster complete, the final testing of the two will be underway. Then, two days before the July 30th launch, the Atlas V rocket will leave the vertical integration facility for good. Travelling by rail, it will cover 1,800 feet or 550 meters to the launch pad in about 40 minutes. From there, Perseverance has about 7 months and 290 million miles or 467 million kilometers to go before arriving at Mars. According to a new study, An exploding white dwarf star blasted itself out of its orbit with another star in a partial supernova and is now hurtling across our galaxy. It opens up the possibility of many more survivors of supernovae travelling undiscovered through the Milky Way, as well as other types of supernovae occurring in other galaxies that astronomers have never seen before. The research analysed a white dwarf that was previously found to have an unusual atmospheric composition. It revealed that the star was most likely a binary star that survived its supernova explosion which sent it and its companion flying through the Milky Way in opposite directions. The scientists were able to measure the white dwarf's velocity and found that it's travelling at 900,000 km per hour. It also has a particularly low mass for a white dwarf, only 40% the mass of our Sun, which would be consistent with the loss of mass from a partial supernova. The giant impacts that dominate late stages of planet formation have a wide range of consequences for young planets and their atmospheres, according to new research. The simulations show how Earth-like planets with thin atmospheres might have evolved in an early solar system depending on how they are impacted by other objects. The researchers ran more than 100 detailed simulations of different giant impacts on Earth-like planets, altering the speed and angle of the impact on each occasion. They found that grazing impacts, like the one thought to have formed our moon, led to much less atmospheric loss than a direct hit. Head-on collisions and higher speeds led to greater erosion, sometimes obliterating the atmosphere completely along with some of the mantle, the layer that sits underneath the planet's crust. The findings provide greater insight into what happens during these giant impacts, which scientists know are common and important events in the evolution of planets both in our solar system and beyond. Research suggests that carbon can indicate the time comets have spent in the solar system. The less carbon, the longer they have been in the proximity of the Sun. The proof comes from the study of Comet Atlas. The comet approached the Earth in May 2020 and disintegrated, displaying a major outbreak of carbonaceous particles. An international team analyzed the composition of dust particles in the coma, shell and tail of the comet. According to the researchers, levels of carbonaceous matter inside the comet were very high. The team suggests that the amount of carbon in the comas of other comets can indicate the time spent by them in the inner solar system. The more carbon a comet coma contains, the less it has been around the sun, and vice versa. In case you didn't know, the two largest planets in our solar system, Jupiter and Saturn, are now at their best for the year. Jupiter reached opposition on the 14th, while Saturn does the same on the 20th. As a result, both planets are at their brightest in the sky and appear largest through a telescope. Jupiter rises first, just a little before sunset. It's now standing magnitude minus 2.8 and after the moon, it is the brightest object in the evening sky. Saturn follows soon after, and appears a little to the left of Jupiter. About 7 degrees separate the pair, so they'll probably fit within the same field of view for 7x35 binoculars, but are too far apart for most 10x50s. Both planets will be visible over the southeastern horizon at about 10pm and will be due south by 1am. Jupiter's disk is 48 arcseconds in diameter on the 15th, but will shrink to 47 arcseconds by the end of the month. This makes it the largest you will see the planet all year and the perfect time for some serious observations and astrophotography. Incidentally, in case you're wondering, Jupiter will be largest at opposition in September 2022 when it will appear 50 arcseconds in diameter. Saturn's rings are still wide open and its disk remains 18 arcseconds in diameter. Compare that to Mars, which increases from 13 arcseconds on the 15th to 15 arcseconds on the 31st. The red planet rises at around midnight and is steadily getting brighter. It now shines at magnitude minus 1 and will brighten to minus 1.4 by the middle of next month. It's predicted to reach magnitude minus 2.6 by the time of its opposition in three months' time. Neptune rises close to 11pm and Uranus follows about two hours later, while the morning sky is dominated by Venus. It rises a full three hours before the Sun and can be easily seen above the eastern horizon in the pre-dawn twilight. It starts the second half of the month close to Aldebaran, the brightest star in the constellation of Taurus the Bull. Get up early on the 17th to see a nice trio of the star, the planet and the waning crescent moon close together. You might also catch a glimpse of Mercury, low over the eastern horizon. It'll be furthest from the Sun on the 22nd, but a super slim moon will appear to its lower left on the 19th. Lastly, the moon turns new on the 20th and then reaches first quarter on the 27th. Ask me what my favourite planet is. Go on, I'll wait. It's Jupiter. Ask most other astronomers and you might hear them say Saturn, but for me it's Jupiter. See the problem with Saturn is that once you've seen the rings through a telescope it's just kinda, well. A little bit boring. Jupiter, on the other hand, is a dynamic world that literally changes by the hour. But first a short history lesson. In January 1610 the Italian astronomer Galileo Galilei became one of the first to turn a telescope toward the planet. Galileo's telescope was crude by today's standards and only magnified by 20 times. It might not sound like much but with this modest scope he discovered the four largest moons of Jupiter and turned the astronomical world on its head. Night by night he observed these tiny star-like points moving about the planet and concluded, correctly, that they orbited the distant world. At a time when many still believed the Earth was the central universe and that literally everything revolved about it, his observations proved to be controversial. Galileo, arguably, had the last laugh as the moons are now known as the Galilean satellites in his honour. Individually, in order of distance from Jupiter, they are Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto, and all but Europa are larger than our own moon. As a child, I was thrilled to discover these moons for myself. I don't know when I first saw the planet telescopically, but after I started my astronomical journal in the spring of 1982, I made my first recorded observation on May the 1st. I was a month short of my 11th birthday. My small, department store 2-inch Tasco refractor was of a comparable size to Galileo's, but probably had better optics, and certainly more magnification. Jupiter was really spectacular, I wrote in my journal. With the naked eye, it appears a deep yellow. At 45 times, it appears large and yellow. It is not so large as to see cloud belts or the red spot, but I hope to observe these under more favourable conditions. I was also able to see the moons. They appeared white and very star-like, I wrote. The moon nearest Jupiter has a red hue. This is Io. The other moons have not yet been identified. Even with my modest scope, I could see that Jupiter was a fascinating world, and I soon began to favour the planet over Saturn. Saturn has moons too, and of course, it has a spectacular set of rings that are easily seen in almost any telescope. But while these are nice to look at, they don't change much. In fact, Saturn takes so long to orbit the Sun that it can sometimes take years before any noticeable change in the appearance of the rings can be seen at all. Jupiter, however, has a very active atmosphere. Through a small telescope, you can see the dark bands of the cloud tops across the face of the planet, and through a larger telescope, you can glimpse further detail in those bands and the famous Great Red Spot. A huge hurricane-like storm in the atmosphere of Jupiter, the Great Red Spot was possibly first observed in the mid-17th century and is large enough to swallow several Earths within it. I may have seen the cloud belts of Jupiter with a tiny telescope, but the Great Red Spot eluded me for almost another 33 years. On Valentine's Night 2015, I finally glimpsed it through my Celestron Nexstar 130 SLT. It took a magnification of over 200 times and a blue filter, but it was there nonetheless. I could, at last, cross it off my astronomical bucket list. Saturn also had cloud bands, but these are much fainter than Jupiter's, and there's certainly nothing on the scale of the Great Red Spot to be seen. Also like Jupiter, Saturn has numerous moons, at least five of which are easily seen with a small telescope. Jupiter's four large moons are bright enough to be seen with binoculars, but while Saturn has a few more within reach, Jupiter's Galilean satellites have one major advantage over their Saturnian cousins. They move quickly. Many amateur astronomers will start their evening observing Jupiter and its moons and then return, hours later, to see how things have changed. Maybe one moon has disappeared behind the planet. Maybe a transiting moon is casting a tiny dark spot of a shadow upon the planet's face. Sometimes more than one moon will get in on the act. You just don't get this with Saturn. Saturn is the type of planet you observe, you admire and then you move on. I hate to say it, but unless you have a much larger scope that can bring out some detail, Saturn is almost a newbie planet. At first there's oohs and ahs, but after the initial wow factor has worn off, there isn't much else to see. Binoculars may show the planet as a tiny, elongated point of light, but its rings can't be clearly seen for what they are. However, point a small telescope toward it and you'll not only see the rings, but also Cassini's division, a large gap between the rings that was first discovered in the late 17th century. Of Saturn's five brightest moons, Titan and Rhea are easily visible through almost any telescope. My first encounter with these distant worlds came on June 3rd, 1982, about a week after the arrival of my new 3-inch refractor. Here's part of my journal entry for the night. Saturn was the last planet to be observed and it was worth waiting for it. At 35 times, the rings were visible. At 117 times, Cassini's division was visible and a faint cloud belt. Then I noticed something yellow and star-like, but it did not twinkle. It was around the 6th magnitude. It was Titan. Then I saw Rhea, Saturn's second brightest moon. Despite the understated nature of my words, as a ten-year-old I was quite excited to see the planet in this way. As the days, weeks and months went by, I returned to both Jupiter and Saturn, but it was always Jupiter that held my attention the longest. I dare say that, if I had a much larger scope, I might find Saturn more captivating, and I certainly don't intend to discourage anyone or imply that anyone is one to prefer it. As we say in our household, never yuck somebody else's yum. That being said, now's the perfect time to enjoy these worlds and decide for yourself. Which will it be? Which one's your favourite? Here's this episode's trivia question. You can get over 700 like it from my book, The Daily Astronomical and Space Quiz Book, which is available on Amazon in both paperback and Kindle format. So here it is. On what date was Comet Hale Bopp discovered? Was it A. June 19th, 1976, B. July 20th, 1989, C. July 16th, 1994, or D. July 23rd, 1995? As always, I'll give you the answer in a few moments. The answer to the trivia question is D July 23rd 1995. Discovered independently by Alan Hale and Thomas Bopp, the comet was found close to the Messier 70 globular cluster in Sagittarius. Hale was an amateur astronomer, whereas Bopp didn't even own a telescope and was attending a star party at the time. That's it for another episode, as always, if you liked it, please subscribe and tell your friends. You can find Stars and Stuff on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple and Google, among others, or by going to tinyurl.com forward slash snspod. If you're interested in my books, you can find them at tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon-us in the United States and tinyurl.com forward slash uk in the in the united kingdom you're also welcome to email me at astronomywriter at gmail.com with any comments or questions you might have and don't forget to come join the stars and stuff facebook group at tinyurl.com forward slash sns facebook group thanks for listening and until we talk again kiss guys to you